thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. This is Michelle Moore. She's going to be speaking about her recent book, Rural Renaissance, Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. I am so excited to talk with you, especially something in a conversation where other people can listen in. You have so much to share, and I think it'll be very beneficial to both the the, the general public, as well as people who are interested specifically in sustainability and sustainability issues. So could I ask you to please perhaps just put a, a brief foundation of a very rich background when it comes to regulatory affairs and in the government. So would you perhaps share with us the rationale for this book and what you're trying to basically convey in it? And then we'll go to some questions. That sounds wonderful. And it's a blessing to be here with you this afternoon. Rural Renaissance for me is really, it's a personal story, you know, as, as well as professional journey. And it was really inspired for me by the desire to share ideas and good news and inspiration that would equip other people like me who love their hometowns, whether that was a new hometown or an old hometown, or I just really had a, you know, a desire to serve people in rural communities with new systems, new businesses, new ideas for how to deeply connect the development of local clean energy futures across America to economic prosperity and quality of life in a way that was aligned with good values, really rerouting our energy systems in um, values that would drive transformative results for communities for the long term. So in terms of looking at energy itself and looking at it from a rural perspective specifically, what is it that you think people don't understand that they probably should understand and how that how does that affect the entirety of the United States? We had the opportunity to talk earlier specifically with regard to uh, programs that were set to electrify the United States, so to speak. And I think that's a really important point. People don't recognize how short amount of time it took to change. Yes. Uh, maybe that's also our salvation in looking at new changes that need to be made as well. Absolutely. And the thing that I think that so few people understand, and then I didn't understand before I began really studying it, is that the vast majority of America's rural communities and small towns are served by nonprofit utilities, and specifically rural electric co-ops and public power utilities, so municipal utilities, essentially, that were designed and built to function as energy democracies. And what I mean by that is that the people who use the electricity, the customers of the utility, are also the people who are in control by virtue of electing democratically boards of directors for rural cooperative utilities or public power utility boards or city councils. In many cases, these public power utilities are managed by city councils um, that gives customers direct control over the outcomes that their utilities are driving. and. And it's designed in a way so that those same customers or member customers, as rural electric cooperatives often speak about it, also own the utility. So there's a very deep connection between governance, ownership, business model, and the community itself. And so from an economic perspective, as it relates to these you know, individual utilities, you know, it really puts the business of the utility in service to the community instead of the other way around. You know, it's not a big public utility that's owned by shareholders somewhere off on Wall Street that are just extracting profits from the people that it served. Hopefully, you know, tempered by the oversight of a public service commission or a public utility commission, control is local. 
And that aspect of energy democracy is absolutely transformative in terms of what the outcomes can be from a clean energy transformation in these rural communities and small towns. Um, and it's also transformational in terms of how we think about the purpose of our energy systems too. Our energy systems don't exist to generate profits for shareholders. Our energy systems in rural communities and many small towns exist to generate community development for the community. And to connect that community to the broader country too, right? Absolutely. To help us do something that we actually don't have maybe in a thought process, but make us more unified, at least information yes. disseminated quickly when we are all at least on a, on a, on a grid of some sort. I, I am perspective. I have one question to ask you because we, we did talk about the, the significance of collective engagement, which is like what a community, what we define a community as is a group of people that are working together because they, they recognize their, their common interests. But do you think enough people understand still they have common interests in their own energy generation in these communities? I think a lot of people in, in rural communities don't even understand that they have control and ownership over their utility. And in other cases, there's some very deep-seated and long-standing challenges with how the democratic little d, you know, democratic intent of these utilities has been undermined over time as well. So for them to really function in the fullness of their potential, their, their potential as they were designed and implemented nearly a hundred years ago, you know, it really in the 1920s and, and 1930s, when America's rural communities were electrified, when farms could finally turn the lights on, there needs to be a, a rediscovery of the democratic principles on which these utilities were founded and a reconnection of their members, of the residents, you know, who live in these places with an understanding and an activation of the agency that they have over the utilities themselves, a uh, little d democratic reformation, if you will. This Maybe brings, a revolution in some cases. <laughs> this brings, yeah, the revolution part is really interesting, but it also brings up uh, this as a case study, a case issue for mm -hmm. similar issues across many different mm -hmm. sectors in this country. Because when you walk away from something that you may have been there to empower you as a community, but you forgot, to, to actually mm -hmm. connect yourself to that empowerment, you've actually allowed perhaps another culture to take over with regard mm -hmm. to the utility itself that no longer wishes to hear what the community yeah. that, that is responsible for its creation wants. So what, what, do you, what would you say about that? Was that the number one stumbling block to, to this movement to actually create clean power in, in these communities? Well, I think that when we're, when we're thinking about local control, community control, you know, expression of energy democracy and rural cooperative and, and small public power utilities. You know, we can look back to when they were formed. What are the what are the roots, the historic roots and the ideological roots of these of cooperatives in particular? And the cooperative movement really traces its roots back to worker cooperatives. For example, the Rochdale Society in Manchester, England, that were formed as a response to the ways in which industrialization was really demeaning and, and, and uh, devaluing workers and the value of work in ways that were extractive and financially damaging that were damaging to health and well-being and the way that workers were abused and even the physical environments in which they were asked to do their jobs. And worker cooperatives 
you know, swept in as a part of that reaction, you know, against the injustices of the industrialization of our societies and sought to reset the balance by sharing resources collectively, you know, in a collectivist environment and sharing ownership and more equitably distributing those benefits. Worker cooperatives and farmer cooperatives were how rural cooperatives got started. And, you know, the seven cooperative principles, which include democratic control and democratic elections, transparency, you know, for instance, um, that are still embraced today by cooperatives all over the world are, you know, really based on an international standard. Now, are those ideas expressed across every cooperative in the country? No. And research has documented that very well among many Southern cooperatives, for instance, um, that were examined, 90% of the members of cooperative boards of directors were white men. You know, clearly that is not representative of the general population or what you would even expect, you know, um, from the given the diversity, gender and, and every otherwise diversity of rural communities. So there is a reset and a rediscovery, you know, of those values that's necessary for cooperatives to really express their promise. And in the book, I explore two examples of this. One that is really grassroots driven, work towards reformation. It's exemplified by an organization called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. And then also the leadership of Curtis Wynn. Curtis Wynn is currently the CEO of Seco Energy, which is a very large cooperative utility in Central Florida. He's also the immediate past elected president of the NRECA. And during his tenure, he led a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy that was unanimously adopted across the entirety of the NRECA membership, which is more than 900 rural electric cooperatives across the country, you know, that really expressed and restated, you know, the consistency of supporting diverse, equitable, inclusive, and just policies and leadership with the seven cooperative principles. So I think that there's a center out and an outside in, you know, inside out and outside in strategy, if you will, for re-democratizing these utilities where they may have gotten off their path. Now, I'm going to change this slightly a little bit, because Mm -hmm. when we talk about energy in in this country, specifically, energy is a need. It's not just a want, because we've Mm -hmm. Anything and everything that we have requires it. So in terms of re-democratizing and actually reformation of the collective, are you actually providing a form of a collective back to the local communities period in doing so? Because of the entrenchment of energy in society, it, it seems as though that could be a first step to actually creating strong local economies. What you just said is exactly the reason that uh, public utilities were created in the first place. You know, in the, in the 1930s, again, you know, if, if we look to history, there was a collective decision that electricity was a public good, that it was necessary for health, wealth, and economic development. One, as one person, I, well, as, as that one quote I read was that electricity energy is the mother of all industries. And I would argue it's a foundation for human civilization at this point. And if we think about the, you know, where we were in the 20s and 30s, the electricity market in this country was dominated by a handful of privately held companies, and they refused to run electricity to rural communities because they said it was too expensive. You know, it was uneconomic 
to run long lines to less densely populated communities. They only wanted to serve the areas that were most profitable and uh, governments didn't have a mechanism for forcing them to do otherwise. It was a very extractive relationship. And when we think about it in the context of rural communities as well, where was the coal coming from that was powering these big city utilities and these profitable private companies was coming from rural communities that might not have even had power themselves. So very inequitable, uneven relationship. And when FDR and his administration, as a part of the New Deal, created the Tennessee Valley Authority, created the Rural Electrification Administration, it was all about getting power to the farm. And it did so very successfully in a very short period of time, economically, proving the private companies wrong. And it was met with a tremendous amount of blowback at the time as well. The TVA in particular was called creeping socialism. And the reaction of the electric power sector at the time was so strong that uh, a past president of what today is Southern Company actually ran against FDR for president in 1940. So we can see today how history is kind of repeating itself in many ways. You know, but we have this infrastructure in America that was created expressly because electricity was deemed to be a public good. And even private electricity companies are regulated, um, regulated monopolies, you know, by public utility commissions or public service commissions whose jobs are to, you know, strike that balance between public good and private profits, a balance that some public utilities commissions do better than others. But even that relationship is a fundamental recognition that electricity and energy is a public good. So I think what we have before us today, you know, is a challenge to really put the public back in public utilities. You know, the tools are there, the infrastructure is there, the governing structures are there. We're just not using them to their full capability. Part that's the most concerning to me is the ability to actually create strong local economic systems. Yes. the rise of 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 these of multinationals, but even mm-hmm. singularly national or entities, has sort of eliminated the the ability for the local economy to thrive, making us more increasingly dependent on entities that are not connected and will never mm-hmm. help foster a collective. So, I guess in in conjunction with this, especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at solutions where you see local communities actually being able to integrate green technologies and also reduction of use, because if you're mm-hmm. actually generating the power and, and taking that risk of that power generation in your local community, you're not going to be as apt to want to overproduce and increase the risk and the waste that is, is associated with it. Where does, because I'm, I'm pretty sure there must be an issue with the, the national entities in terms of, of them sort of counterbalancing this, this desire that actually makes the most sense, uh, which is to have small local systems that are thriving, eating foods that are decentralized in their growth. Uh, we know the USDA is trying to establish decentralization in agriculture, but again, the large commercial entities offer a tremendous threat to that as well. So I, I know I'm going in a couple of places, but they're definitely related. So, Absolutely. And I think that in, in a certain sense, we're acculturated or habituated to thinking of scale as being good or scale of being more efficient somehow. And that's just not always true. In the energy sector in particular, 
you know, originally, you know, when we began to electrify the country, you know, energy generation tended to be local, but the technology didn't favor that. You know, the technology made the more economical, uh, more deployable energy systems need to be bigger in its scale. You know, so we ended up with this 19th century energy infrastructure that's very industrial in its expression. You know, so you have local communities, local neighborhoods. You know, we have local decision making about so many aspects of how we use energy, what we use energy for um, because of federalism in, in this country. We have an extraordinarily diverse natural environment in this country. You know, some places have tons of sun, some have tons of wind, some have lots of land, some have lots of buildings. You know, it, it's uh, some have hydro. Um, so it's not a one size fits all solution from a natural resources perspective as well. But we're stuck with this sort of gigantic scale of power plants and transmission lines that are very much out of alignment with the expression of even human society. And the transition that we've gone through from a technological perspective, it's that clean energy technologies and it's with that, you know, solar, wind, but energy storage, EVs, microgrids, you know, smart appliances, you know, all of these things enable us to bring our energy systems back down to a local scale a local scale that's in alignment with local economies that keeps the value local too. You're not extracting undervalued resources in one place and selling them at overvalued profit somewhere else. You know, you're able to keep that entire cycle within the context of a community, you know, really through these local utilities, these rural electric cooperatives and public power utilities that we're talking about. And part of the tension is as you're observing the struggle between these legacy systems, this infrastructure that, you know, served us, you know, served us maybe well incompletely, you know, but helped to lift a lot of people out of poverty by providing that power. But how do we then make the transition, not just from dirty to clean, but from massive and industrial to local and human scale and, and ultimately healthier? So there are more than just the potential for waste reduction, though. There's also loss reduction, right? Uh, yes. When we're small local systems, we're more efficient. Much more. I have a couple of questions there. I mean, I've always thought to myself that if each neighborhood, like one of those uh, development, developed communities, mm -hmm. if each one of them had their own incinerator, if they had their own, you know, a small incinerator with a nice scrubber unit to absorb any kind of ambient waste, uh, but also you had your own energy generation, uh, more than likely they would develop conservation stances because they'd be paying for it and maintaining it themselves that they don't have to do uh, since it's away. It's out of sight, out of mind, somebody else's problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, you know, the, there's always a little bit of a push pull, I think with energy because um, it is so technical and you have to have the technical management resources locally as well. But I do believe that it has that potential. You know, the organization that I lead, Groundswell, develops community solar projects and community resilience hubs, um, among other programs that are all really meant to reduce energy burdens and increase, you know, community benefits and line of sight visibility into, you know, the local solar project that's providing your power is something that creates a much deeper connection 
you know, for people with their energy systems and also with its impacts. You know, we have seen in the customer survey results that we've done that people, regardless of what their economic background may be, equally value the economic benefits of local clean power and the environmental benefits because it shows people a way that they're contributing to the kind of future that they want to have for themselves and the future generations of their families. And in my experience, and also some from some of the literature that I've read, the apocalyptic narratives that, I mean, we're all living at this point as it relates to the condition of our climate can make you feel really powerless and can rob you of hope. And seeing how these smaller scale, human scale, community scale, you know, energy systems can provide what we need better, more efficiently, more economically, and, you know, contribute towards a future that we want, I think also can help restore a sense of agency to people at the individual level, right, as as individuals that can help also foster a greater civic engagement you know, in a way that's beneficial to our communities and not this extraordinarily divisive national environment that we're in. So since you brought up divisiveness, I mean, there's it's unfortunate perception that green or sustainable anything should be first deployed to people who are wealthier, not necessarily deployed to those people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum. When we talk about energy, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, oxymoron in a sense, because those who are on the lower end are going to be paying more and having less efficiency when they themselves have limited funds. So could you reconcile these two issues perhaps in in just your own commentary? I think there are two two perspectives to to recognize or or two things for me that um, I think about as I consider how do we uproot, you know, that fallacy, right? How do we uproot that fallacy? One is that technocratic, technophile kind of culture of the energy and sustainability sector itself. And there's a dependence historically in the field on the technology adoption curve, ultimately driving down prices and making technologies more widely available at a lower cost. I mean, just like your TV, right? New TV comes out, it's really expensive, rich people buy it. A lot of people, rich people buy it and then eventually the price comes down and then a new fancier TV comes out that the rich people buy and then everybody who's not rich can get the like old good TV that's still good, but it's just not, you know, like the latest, greatest anymore. And depending on that mechanism, you know, to bring down prices and make products more accessible, when it comes to a public good like energy that everybody has to have to survive. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's fundamental is, is a flawed thought process. The other piece of it is that, you know, in, in the United States, we've been very dependent on tax incentives to buy down the cost of innovation in the energy sector. And, you know, I appreciate what like the ITC um, which is kind of more commonly known as the solar tax credit, you know, has done to make solar more accessible. And it's certainly been part of bringing down the cost as the technology was more widely deployed, you know, all the benefits of scale in, uh, in a technology. But what, depending on tax credits as an incentive does, is it's basically the, it's the government paying rich people to be landlords over people who aren't rich. You know, so rich people get rewarded or rich companies that have tax appetite 
get rewarded with ownership, whereas anybody isn't, who isn't wealthy enough to have tax appetite or wealthy enough to be able to pay the lawyers that you have to pay to be able to access, you know, tax credit benefits is stuck paying rent. You know, so bottom line, it means people who aren't wealthy pay more than people who are wealthy, which just perpetuates the extraordinary, you know, economic inequities in, in this country and, and around the world at this point. With the recently passed and signed into law Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there was a very, very important policy innovation that will enable all of us who work in the field to begin to correct some of those inequities. And the Inflation Reduction Act made the ITC, the solar tax credit, refundable for nonprofit institutions. And that includes nonprofit utilities like rural electric cooperatives and public power utilities. And it also increased the value of that tax credit to 40%. So 40% of the total cost of a system you know, can be refunded as a tax credit um, to nonprofit institutions for uh, projects, solar or energy storage or resilience projects that are located in underserved communities or what is called energy transition communities. So, for instance, a community that has historically depended on uh, coal extraction or coal-fired power plants for most of its employment. And that policy innovation, you know, as kind of specific and precise as it is, you know, gives us the opportunity to kind of blow open community ownership of these energy assets and, and begin to shift the economic outcomes associated with energy asset ownership over the long time or over the long term rather. And you know that just wasn't terribly feasible without extraordinary cost. And we were working within a system where only the wealthy, wealthy people or wealthy companies were able to access the full benefit of renewable energy. I have a few other questions for you, but I'm going to first stop here and just thank you so much and, and advise people to pick up a copy of your book, especially those people, because majority of America is rural. We very, very few of us really grew up in urban environments, at least by, based on census classifications. So what you're also referring to here is the solution and providing that for most communities, if they're willing to start to think about something that we all take for granted. We don't really mm -hmm. sit back and think about where our energy is coming from in many ways, the same way that we don't think about where our trash goes. Exactly. And perhaps this is something that we need to get started uh, when we start to engage in civic duty. So thank you so much for the discussion, the commentary and for piquing the curiosity of people and hopefully engaging them to learn what they can do on the front lines of, of action that needs to be taken. So thank you. Thank you. It's a blessing to be able to share a word. And I would say just building on your thoughts, everybody can do something. And there's no such thing as small ball. You know, every, everything that you do matters. Every um, decision that you make, every service, you know, that you bring to your community. And there's such a wealth of very accessible solutions that we can bring to our hometowns and wonderful examples of the people who have already pioneered the way that we can follow. So anybody who decides to do this, I wouldn't say that you can expect it to be easy because it's not, you know, anytime you do something the first time, it's going to be a little bit harder than this the second time, but you're not alone. You've got a lot of friends and fellows in the work. Thank you so much.